You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Why don't we stand to our feet? I want to read this text, and then I have a funny story to tell you about something that happened to me, because that's my life, and we'll get on to it. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then John chapter 2. In the beginning, everyone should really know this. Like, you all should have hit this in your daily reading plan this year. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Let me just point out now, something has already fallen. Gotcha. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, or in Hebrew, chaos. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. What kind of light has darkness in it that he needs to separate darkness from the light? These are all good questions to ask while you're reading. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning. And everybody say it with me. The first day. John chapter 2. On the... I was really looking forward to that part. Genesis begins with creation that happens on the first day, but the gospel begins with creation that happens on the third day. These points cannot skip by us. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding because he's not boring (laughs) and not judgmental, and people like him. Church, can we be that way? We're never going to make it through this reading. I'm going to have to keep zapping. His disciples also were not boring and invited to the wedding. I digress. (laughs) When the wine ran out, it doesn't say why. We think something bad happened. But what if it's because the people who were having the wedding were too generous? You notice how we always think something bad happened? It could be because, like, Uncle Chuck was there who just keeps drinking. That's a possibility. It could be because they were too generous, and sometimes being too generous without wisdom could get us into a world of hurt. Could be because they were stingy and they just didn't get enough. Could be a lot of things. But we have to keep, always keep that open. The wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus very politely and affectionately said, woman... <laughs> What does this have to do with me, Uh, Jesus, everything, always and all the time? My hour has not yet come. His mother, listening to him submissively, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I just told you I'm not doing anything about it. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Something was happening in a temple, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. You all do the math. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Notice he never says, let there be wine. Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants, and only the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, not Jesus, and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, not Jesus, kept the good wine until now. 
And Jesus never takes credit for it. This, the first of his signs corresponding to the first day, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him after he made 180 gallons of wine. So if the elders could please bring out the water jars, we will, no. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you that you will do anything and everything to keep the party going. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Man, those are really rich texts in the Bible, no? Just, you're, if you don't read with imagination, you're reading the Bible, you're not reading scripture. Too many of us read the Bible, but very few of us actually end up reading scripture. One day I'll explain that. But now I just want it to make you wonder. I get on the airplane on Friday. I took the last flight out on Friday because I was hanging out with Chris Green, who's becoming one of my very best friends. And I am not good at separating when I'm having a good time or I love people. And when he dropped me off at the airport, it was like a bad Nick Cage kind of movie. Like I was just sad at an airport, which is so cliche. And we hugged like David and Jonathan. And I watched him drive off with my hand out like... Going through security on a Friday is fun at an airport, and we finally get onto the plane, and when I'm walking to get on the plane, they have the huge windows, and there is like an apocalyptic thunderstorm coming. It is pitch black. There's lightning everywhere. I'm like, I just, I really, like, I'm landing in LaGuardia, which is now the worst airport on planet Earth. I'm landing there at 11.15 p.m., and I know we're not, we're not taking off anytime soon, so I somehow finagle my way to getting bumped up to an exit seat, which is always a good strategy if you see that one is open because there's some leg room in an exit seat. It's like, you have more leg room than first class if you set an exit seat. Somebody else sat next to me on the exit seat. My man sits down next to me, maybe about my age. He's wearing sunglasses on the plane, so right away I'm like, I'm in trouble. Because <laughs> he's that kind of person. I'm like, what's up? He's like, I am drunk. Okay, so he's like, uh, what do you do? And I, I, listen, no, 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 nope, 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 not me. Listen, not me. I grew up in this, I grew up in a church where, where ministers, like, I've been waiting to finally have this happen. Every minister in the world has this story, and they all have the dumbest things that they say. I'm an ambassador. <laughs> For who? For a wealthy Jew. Like, shut <laughs> I'm a pastor, and I want to relax on the plane right now. He's like, you're a pastor? He's like, listen, I turned myself in. I'm like, all right, don't, don't tell me things I'm going to be accountable to right now because I'm off. I don't want to work. I want to put my head against the wall here, watch this thunderstorm go by, take off and go home. He's like, I gave myself over to Jesus. I turned myself in because both of my baby mamas told me I had to. And then he goes, you know what you need to know, pastor? And I'm like, please tell me. He's like, the word is the word. (laughs) Oh, this guy's called to be a pastor, let me tell you. So I'm like, just the the pilot, this is your captain speaking. We're going to be delayed an hour, but we're already out on the tarmac, so we can't go back. We're going to shut the engines off in Tampa, Florida. While this slow-moving storm goes by, and I'm like, oh, no. No. 
My man starts to argue with his girlfriend, listen to me, on FaceTime. Who does that? The whole plane has to know now what you're arguing about. And, and he keeps turning it and saying to her, yeah, I got my pastor sitting next to me. I got my pastor sitting next to me. I got my pastor sitting next to me. No, you don't. I'm new. I'm not there yet, man. Like, just nonstop, sloshed, tore up, whatever you want to say. She's yelling at him for, for drinking too much. And I'm like, on, like, I'm really trying not to be on her side. Like, dude, she's right. Like, what are you doing? She's like, why are you talking like that? And he's like, you know, you know because I'm, uh, the plane is, is in a storm and it's spinning. No, it's not. To you, it is. To everyone else, it's not. So long story short, the flight gets canceled for the night. So we get off the plane. I call Chris up, and I'm like, yo, you miss me? Yeah, man. Can you come back and get me? Because I'm not flying out. So I, he comes all the way back. We drive all the way back to his house. I sleep for three hours, come all the way back to the airport in the morning, and he's still sitting next to me because it's the same flight. So listen, he sits Now it's 9 o'clock in the morning. He sits down next to me, and I go, what's up? And he goes, can you please not talk to me? I'm tired. (laughs) All I'm trying to do is take simple, like, my pastor has been preaching that we need to be taking simple delight this summer and having rest. And I'm trying to rest. And externally, I did a good job, but internally, I failed miserably. And here's why. Because when you are not trying to rest, you will never come into contact with your restlessness. You will tell yourself you don't have it. But until you try to rest, you will never realize how vulnerable you are to restlessness. So because I'm pulling rest into my life this summer... And I find myself saying, okay, I'm going to get on an airplane and it's going to be delayed, but I'm going to delight in the fact, God, Jesus, please give me something to delight in about the situation. And I'm going to just not complain. I'm going to, I'm going to rest. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to read. And dr- Drunks McGee sits next to me on the airplane. And all of a sudden you realize inside, I'm not good at resting. I'm in a lot of turmoil. And so this is kind of thrusting me into the message. And by way of review... I want to say this, because these are all the things I failed in on the airplane, inside, not externally. And we have to stop feeling too good about ourselves because we didn't physically do something. Jesus will criticize you and say, you are like a cup that is clean on the outside. Right, and so that's the part that matters. It doesn't matter that I wasn't rude. It doesn't matter that I wasn't cranky. It doesn't matter, like, I sat there, I talked to him, I engaged him, but inside I didn't want to be, and that's what God is focusing on. Always. Sabbath is not rest from storms, but relation to God within them. Jesus is sleeping on the boat because he has a relation to the Father that means he can rest even when there's storm. I'm going to skip through these because they're on the previous podcasts. Sabbath is not always rest with things done, but trust with things left undone. If anyone says, I can finally take rest when I'm finished working, you will never, ever take rest in your entire life. And if you think things are done, I, come meet with me. I will show you many things in your life that are still left undone. It's my job. I will tell you. And then Sabbath is not celebration of perfection, but delighting in the God of the mess. In the resurrection of all things, we will celebrate perfection. Perfection. 
In the meantime, we're delighting in the God who sleeps in storms. We're delighting in the God of the mess. So if we're waiting for work to be done to rest, we will never rest. If we're waiting to attain some kind of sanctification in our life and then we'll rest, we will never rest. But here's what we know. God is the kind of God who doesn't need work to be done to rest, which is why he can rest with you today. God is not the kind of God who only celebrates perfection because he would not have celebrated from the minute he said, let there be light. And we're about to talk about this in a minute. He celebrates what he knows will be because God is timeless and sees what will be now as if he's already in what will be. And so he can call things good that aren't good. And he's saying that over every one of us right now. This is why God can call David a man after his own heart. Read the Bible. And I want the ladies to read the Bible specifically. David is not a good person. But yet God says he's a man after my own heart because God is always seeing David in what David will be, not what David ever was. And God can speak to him presently like he will be because God sees like that. So if we ever say, oh, I'm going to do what David did so that I could be a man after God's own heart, please don't. You'll go to jail probably. <laughs> Your marriage will fail probably. David was a man after God's own heart because God said he was, not because David did anything to prove that. This is where rest comes from, everyone. Rest comes from the fact that in my messed upness, God rests with me as if I'm finished. I don't need to do anything, like Stephanie said, I don't need to do anything to self-promote because all of my self-promotion is a lie anyway, but I have a God who's with me in everything that's true about me, even though what's true about me is my heart is desperately wicked. And I live from the reality that he's already satisfied with who I am because he's satisfied with who I will be and sees it now. Are we tracking? It's hot. Gosh. All right. So day one is let there be light. And miracle one in the gospel of John is let there be wine. So I want to say this to start. The Sabbath exposes our systems to transform them into his rhythms. The Sabbath exposes our systems to transform them into his rhythms. So the work on day one of Genesis is God creates holy rhythm. He creates holy rhythm. Rhythm that reflects the love and care of God as father. He creates holy rhythm. He separates light from darkness and teaches them to relate to each other. He separates day and night and teaches them to relate to each other. He separates evening and morning and teaches them to relate to each other. And then it says, and this was day one, leading you to believe, and we know that there are other days to come. So in instantaneously, God is hovering over chaos because something has already gone wrong. Here's, and listen, I'm going I'm to leave everybody hanging because this is going to get unpacked for a while. But here's the reality. Your Bible in Genesis 3 will have a title that says the fall. And it is always 100% wrong. Because Genesis 1 is about God relating to something that's already fallen. Because when he, the first word about creation in the Bible is darkness, not light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and... Darkness. So darkness is spoken of before light. And the spirit is hovering over chaos. 
Something's already happened. There's already darkness, and there's already chaos. And if you don't believe me there, just fast forward in your mind to Genesis 3, and you have two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and So there's already a knowledge of evil that exists in the earth. If there was no evil, there would be no knowledge of it. And there's also a cunning creature that is up to no good in what we've been calling God's perfection. But there's the knowledge of evil that God wants Adam and Eve to avoid. There's already been darkness. There's already been light that's needed to be separated from darkness. So God is creating redemptively. I'm getting to why in a minute. He's creating, his creating is his redeeming because he is alpha and, and at the end we know he's going to judge in a way that redeems anything, everything, but he is alpha and, which means his beginning is the same as his, and his beginning is redemption because he's already infiltrating darkness and redeeming it the same way he's going to do it at the end because there's no difference between Genesis 1 and Revelation 21. He's alpha and, he's not alpha then omega. He is beginning and end at the same time. And so whatever he does in Genesis is what he's doing in Revelation. Listen, I took a week off and I spent it with Dr. Chris Green. So you all better buckle up because we're going into the deep waters. Is this fun? It's got to be interesting. Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. Meaning Jesus is saying there's nothing in me that can be tempted because there's nothing in me that he can lock onto that is against the will of the Father. But Adam can be tempted because he's already fallen. Because we think Adam and Eve sinned when they ate the fruit. They didn't sin when they ate the fruit. They sinned when their inside said yes to eating the fruit. So what is happening in Genesis 1 and in the seven days of creation is this is being given the first people who got Genesis as a whole book were the Babylonian exiles, the Israelites that were in Babylon. They're the first people to get Genesis as a whole book. So they're in darkness. They're in exile. Things aren't going well. And they get a book from their scribes that is filled with the oral traditions of Israel and the scriptures that have been written down. And they put it together and they give it to these exiles. And what Genesis 1 is telling them is that you think everything is a mess and you think God has forgotten you. But their story is the story of a God who always runs that darkness and redeems it. Which is why if you're a Babylonian exile, you're living in darkness, which is why in Genesis, every day begins in the evening and turns to morning because he's telling the exiles, it's dark now. Weeping may endure for the night, but that's what he's telling them in Genesis 1. Exiles are reading this saying, oh, the day begins in darkness, but it ends in light. So even though our existence is dark right now, Darkness doesn't have the final word. But this is, Genesis 1 is the story of a God who doesn't speak from a distance but runs at darkness and instantly relates to our chaos. He doesn't stand far away from it and say, you should have done it differently. He is in the midst of your mess, separating darkness from light. All the time. All of the time. Genesis 1 through 7 is the story of the cross. From the very beginning.
Holy rhythms is what he tells us. So he's talking to people who are in exile, whose lives are in utter chaos. And he's instantly starting by giving them holy rhythms. Let's just talk about a few holy rhythms. Work and rest is a rhythm. And if you notice on the graph that I made, the rhythm changes with natural flow, but also with discernment. And this is important. Night is going to come and we're all going to get tired. Yes? So we always don't need, we don't always need the Holy Spirit to tell us when it's time to go to sleep. There's natural rhythms, but there's times where you need discernment to stay awake even when you're tired. And there's discernment to know that you need to rest even though the light, the sun is still out. Like Sophia tells us all the time, I'm not going to bed because the sun is still up. Well, it just happens to be the summer and the sun's up until midnight now, so you're going to bed whether you like it or not. We need to follow natural rhythms but also discernment because who created the earth? A trinity created the earth. And because a trinity created the earth, that means that the very origin of our being is communal. Let us make man in our image, God says to himself. And so every rhythm that God establishes is a a rhythm that keeps community together. So we don't just follow natural flow, although we do, but we also need discernment. We also need to commune with each other and God to know when our lives need to ebb and flow from things like work and rest. Also from function and romance. This is in relationships, marriages specifically, but in any kind of relationship, there's the function of the relationship and then there's the fun of the relationship. And so there's things that need to get done to keep a relationship going. But then there are things that should feel careless and, and carefree because we're, we're, we're enjoying ourselves. And so like so much of marriage is a day-to-day grind of keeping it together. But if that's all you do, the marriage is going to get suffocated. It's going to break if all you do is do what needs to be done. Sometimes you have to do things that don't need to be done. You have to put that away and do stuff that you want to do even if it doesn't need to be done. I'm being very careful right now. (laughs) Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight, gonna ground on the... Right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right, hon? (laughs) Let me show you what I think is the funniest scripture in the entire Bible. Here's people not willing to get romantic with God for various reasons. Jesus invites everybody to a feast, and people start giving him excuses why they can't come. So they're only working. They're not resting. They're only working, and here's their excuses. This, to me, is the funniest text in the entire Bible. So Jesus invites everybody, and it says in Luke 14, verse 18, But they all alike began to make excuses. Listen carefully to these excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Now notice, he says, please have me excused. This is very important. I bought a field. I need to go inspect it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. So what have both of them done? They've both asked permission to be excused. Watch the third one. I have married a wife, and I can't come. (laughs) The conversation's over. Jesus is like, listen, about the field, or listen, about the oxen. And then the third guy's like, I I married someone. Jesus is like, yeah, you can go. Just go. You can go. Hilarious. But all three of them work harder on their blessings than they do on the God who blessed them because they don't know when to stop. And listen, time will fail me 
to talk about what happens when it's only fun and games and romance and there is no function. That only will happen at the beginning of something. It'll never make it to the end of anything. Because work sets the space for romance. And if there's only romance and there's no work, then eventually the romance gets suffocated. And what happens is you end up running out. And then liturgy and surprise. Church should be planned. Our morning routines should be planned. Our, there should be parts of our service that are completely predictable. And then there should be parts that are surprising, and it should happen in natural flow plus discernment. Both of them have to work. And I, you've heard me use this example before. Mary Magdalene wants to go to the tomb to anoint the dead body of Jesus, but first she rests on the Sabbath because that's the Jewish liturgy. She doesn't ask God if she should. She does because God's already told her to. And then she wakes up on the first day of the week and goes to the tomb. And watch this. Because she followed liturgy, she got there to see the resurrection. If she said, I want to be spontaneous, I want to be full of the Spirit, I'm going to step outside of liturgy and I'm going to go on Saturday, all she would have ever done is anointed a dead thing. And she would have missed the resurrection. Liturgy got her to the resurrection. Please never forget that. I'll die on that hill. Never forget that. Liturgy got her to the tomb on the right day. If she would have stepped outside of liturgy and said, this is for Roman Catholics, then she would have been to the tomb on Saturday and successfully anointed a dead thing, which is what so many of us do when we think life only has to be spontaneous. We end up getting to the right place at the wrong time. And let me just say, for pure sarcasm, you can't plan to be spontaneous because then your spontaneity is a liturgy. Every service should be spontaneous. Well, if you're telling me that, then none of them will be spontaneous, except if I do liturgy, right? So, anyway. God creates healthy rhythms that keep life from running out of wine. And then the burnout comes. What is the burnout? The burnout is recreating vain rhythms. Rhythms that reflect self-defense or self-preservation. Rhythms that are systematic, church, politically, and religiously. We do this all the time. And I have wrestled with how I want to say this, and here's what I'm going to say to you. So much of what I'm about to say, I'm probably going to look back on in five years and say I could have said it better. So here's the deal. If you love me, have patience with me, but also take what I'm saying seriously. You've never said anything that you wouldn't say better the second time you said it. But here's the reality. In our religious conversation and in our political conversation, if we fall into systems, our conversation has two, only two kinds. Either we don't talk about it. How many have heard? There's a few things you don't talk about at Thanksgiving. Religion and either you don't talk about it, which isn't like a God who creates by speaking. Not talking about it is not being like God. God talks. That's why you're here. We exist because God said. So if we think not talking is always the right answer, we're not being like God. Jesus was called the word to show us that conversation matters that much. But if our conversation is only defending what we already believe and nothing else, we're not conversating, we're debating, and that is a broken view of what God does. Paul said this, and hear me very carefully. 
now we know in part. But when the fullness comes, we will then be known as we have been known. But he's saying this, now I know in part. So listen to me carefully. Every single doctrine of the church, people want to know, what's your stance on this? What's your stance on that? You all know what they are. I'm not going to get into the muddle of that now. But you know what people want to know what our stances are on things. Where are you politically? Where are you on sexuality? Where are you on marriage? Where are you on the role of the Bible? All, All these things. And here's the thing. We only know in part Everything that we know to be true is only known in part. And if we run around acting like we know the whole thing and we're never willing to have a conversation about it, we will be sorely surprised when the rest of what is known comes. We only know in part, which means the conversation has to be going even on the most important things because we don't know fully. And when we walk around acting like we fully know, those things that we only know in part, are we not Adam and Eve eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, creating a world that says this is right and this is wrong in the church? People say to me all the time, are you for open borders or are you for a wall? I'm not for that question because both are stupid. Both of those things are stupid. Open borders is irresponsible. And a wall, just ask Jericho how well walls go. I'm for a wall that has a lot of revolving doors in them. Revolving doors in them. Doors that can let people in and doors that can let people out. Even some Americans. As if because I did everything legally to be here, I'm worthy of being here. I believe in systems that need to turn to rhythms. When all we do is function in a system with our morality, we will sit at Jesus' feet like Mary did, and Jesus will eventually say to us at his feet, you haven't chosen the better portion because you're at my feet, but you're still not with me. We need rhythms, not systems. We need a rhythm in the country that creates safety for who comes in, but that can also support the outlying situations where there are no rules for. We all do it with our kids and our friends. We have rhythms, like don't, don't trespass my life this way, but we all know there's those moments where everyone around us is going to say we're crazy for still loving the way that we're loving. Because every system has no outliers, but rhythms do. God didn't send us a system. He sent us a person and we treat Jesus, we treat new covenant like new system. Here's what I'll tell you. This is going to be so much fun. God never gave us anything in the entire Bible that worked. Is it still broken right now? Didn't work. He gave us Jesus. And in faith, Jesus works. Nothing else worked. He delivered them from Egypt. Did it work? No. He destroyed everything with a flood. Did it end unrighteousness? No. Sent them into exile a bunch of times. Did they get better? No. Jesus works. Your conversations about him have to be conversations. Because watch this. 1125, don't care. Watch this. This is important, what I'm talking to you about right now. 
This is important. I'm, I'm away from the liturgy I planned. This is important. He separates the light from the darkness. But we need a rhythm of both. So John 3, 9, can you just put up the John 3 text? I think it's John 3, 9. He says, they were evil because men loved darkness rather, rather. Not that they loved it, they loved it rather. Because the word rather means I'm no longer in a system. I'm I'm no longer in a rhythm. I'm now in a system. I've chosen one end as if I'm going to treat it like the whole thing. This is why our political discourse goes crazy. We are always defending extremes now. And there's no room for Christianity in political extremes. And here's the thing. People say, they, you, you love me for it or you hate me for it. And I've met with both of you. I, I've met with one couple that told me I'm too far right. And I met with another couple that told me I'm too far left, which means I'm so happy to say I'm exactly where I need to be. Because if you're right, I'm left. And if you're left, I'm right. Because I'm in the middle. Because there's a healthy rhythm. It's wrong to choose darkness rather than light. But it's wrong to choose light rather than darkness also. Because if all we ever do is choose light, we will never go into a dark world and love it the way we're supposed to. And the church has done that disgustingly for too long. I need to leave my job. Too many people curse. I need to leave my job. My boss is sleeping around. I need to leave my job because of this. I need to move into a new neighborhood because they're immoral. Do you want to be salt and light to other people who are salt and light? Or did Jesus, is it said of him, a light shone in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it because he chose darkness and he happened to it. And if we only choose light, we will never happen to darkness and we will cease to be Christian. So we have to have a rhythm of Coming here, like on a Sunday is a good example. Coming here and bathing ourselves in the light and reorienting ourselves in the light and hearing light preach to us so we can go out and be the light in the darkness. If there is no room in your morality for an outlier, it's not Christ-like. If there's no room in your politics to change your mind, it's not Christ-like. You don't need a pastor if we live in systems. All you need is the system to work. Look, next year when this election rolls around, I'm preaching a series called The Roller Coaster Effect. And it's what happens when your car is just stuck on a track and you're at the mercy of where it goes. We don't want that. We serve a person, not a roller coaster, who walks through life not on a track. We have to be people. If you talk about any of the topics that I can name that are all hot button, if you talk about them in a way where you are defending what you already know and there's no room in you to hear anything else, it's not Christ-like. The world needs people who don't just listen, but listen knowing that they might change. And this feels dangerous to some of you right now, and it should. It should feel dangerous because right now we know in part And if we choose an extreme, only knowing in part, then what we're doing is we're saying, I know all there is to know. And if you think you do, that's a very depressing reality because stuff ain't right. It's broken still. I I need to know that there's more I don't know that's better than what I do know. 
Dropped all my pens. Go, go with my. When we live in systems, you ready? Here's what we do. My watch is actually broken, so I'm going to pretend I don't see that. When we live in systems, here's what we do. We live as if Jesus said. We live as if Jesus didn't say something greater than Solomon is here. Somebody shout out a very popular book that Solomon wrote. There's 31 of them. Proverbs. If there's not something greater than Solomon, if there's no Jesus when I read the book of Proverbs, then guess who I'll end up just like? Solomon. I don't think Jacqueline wants me to have 599 more wives. (laughs) To be perfectly honest with you, I don't think I want to have any more wives because I'm the guy like, Jesus, I can't come because I got married. Like, (laughs) why do I need 600 more of that, right? Andy Stanley. How many know Andy Stanley? How many know Charles Stanley? Andy Stanley, his son, is having a reawakening, and he just said, why do we take dating advice from a man that had 600 wives? I'm going to keep going. Christianity Today. Christianity Today just put out a piece, Google it, about how we shouldn't take Karl Barth's theology because Karl Barth had two affairs. It mentions that Martin Luther King Jr. also had an affair. So I'm getting text messages from people who read it while I was trying to relax in Florida. And what do you think about this? And here's what I said, and I hope this offends somebody. Here's what I said. Until Christianity Today wants to call David's theology in the Psalms into question because he had adultery, and until Christianity Today wants to call Proverbs into question because Solomon had adultery, I don't want to hear about this because all it is is like some kind of weird escapism trying to hide my own sin behind the article I just wrote on Christianity Today. Without something greater than Solomon, the book of Proverbs is evil because it doesn't work. What did David say? I have never seen the righteous forsaken and begging for bread. Well, clearly you didn't go to Haiti. Or the Bronx. It doesn't work without Jesus. Systems don't work Rhythms do. Rhythms, like my breathing and my heartbeat and my blinking. If it's systematic, I would die. There's times where my heart has to speed up. There's times where it has to slow down. There's times where I can keep my eyes open for a really long time. There's times where I blink a lot. Imagine your eyes only blank in system, and then you got something in it. And you're like, I really hope the system comes soon because this hurts. My face hurts. Uh, Thank you, Jesus. Rhythms. Jesus came to burn the system down. That's why they tried to burn him down. We will not rest if we try to find a system. At some point, you will have to break the rule of the system you've chosen to live in if you're gonna follow Jesus. Well, this person is immoral and so they're not coming over my house. Here's my thing, here's my thing. There's, there could be wisdom in that, yes? Yes, there definitely could be and I'm not saying that but here's what I'm saying. System means you don't have to pray about it. 
System means you just get that roller coaster to click onto that track, and then you don't need a pastor, you don't need a friend, you don't need God, you don't need the Trinity, you just need to make sure that wheel doesn't come, and you end up doing track maintenance instead of praying. Systems means I don't need you. Systems mean I don't need to pray. Systems mean I don't need God. Systems mean I don't, I, I, God hasn't fitted me to my wife in a unique way that reveals God to the world. But systems means that's just always going to work. We have to work at it. We need rhythms. There's times where my wife and I need to stop working and spend a ton of time together. And there's other times where we know it's perfectly fine. This is not the season to be spending a lot of time together. We need to be investing our time other places. It's rhythm. It's not system. Don't ever make decisions about anything and assume God doesn't have something to say about it. One more thing while we're here. Forget what Paul says spiritually about how we know in part. We know that we are not fully aware of our whole self. We're, we're aware of like something, you hear different things, 10%, 15%, 20% of our brain we're aware of. Most of it we're not. That's the consensus. The part of me that is self-aware, I'm going to stand in front of you and say this, in a self-aware way, I know that I care deeply about not being racist. But I don't know the majority of me that produces me. So if I run around acting like there's no chance that I could ever be racist, as a white man of power living in this world, I'm wrong. And that assumption is racist because the majority of me I don't know about. Spiritually, I only know about me in part, and scientifically, I only can use part of me and not the majority of it. So if I walk around saying, oh, that's not me, what am I saying? I'm saying that the 20% of myself that I know is all of myself. And here's the reality. I don't want that to be true because I'm not that good. We walk around defensive because we don't want to admit things because in a system, everything is tethered to something else. And if I admit the possibility of one thing here, it crashes down, pun intended, the house of cards. If anybody was following Netflix, that was an amazing point I just made. If you're not, cool, you read your Bible a lot. It's good. If you do follow Netflix, well, that was a pretty good, all right, it doesn't matter. The whole house of cards comes down. Systems are a ladder, and on that ladder you have, say, a hundred different doctrines and beliefs, but systems are a ladder, and if one rung on that ladder is broken, you can't use any of the ladder. But rhythms are like a lattice, and when a piece of a lattice is broken, you can take that piece out, and the whole structure is still in place, and you can work on that piece and put it back in. Fundamentalism is a ladder. If you believe this, it connects to this, it connects to this, it connects to this, it connects to this, and somehow it all connects to who's going to heaven or hell. And if one thing, if you call one thing into question, you're calling the whole faith into question. And that is exhausting. You'll burn out. There's no rest in that. Rhythms. Breathing. Learning from people who aren't Christian. God forbid do I need to talk about Balaam's donkey? Don't laugh because we're Balaam's donkey to them too. We could look out there and say we need to learn from Balaam's donkey, but they're out there saying maybe we need to learn from Balaam's donkey when it comes out of the church. That works both ways. Listen, you all know I love you, right? I'm trying to say stuff the best I can 
to help us break away. Genesis is a liturgy. Evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. It's a rhythm given to exiles who need rhythm in chaos. Politically, we need rhythm, not system. Religiously, we need rhythm, not system. I was just talking to my accountant, and she was freaking out about some of the tax laws that liberals are trying to enforce. And I said, man, it stinks that Jesus said we have to love tax collectors, doesn't it? And she didn't respond. (laughs) Or grunted or something. Rhythm, not system. All right. I think I have more points. Christ's work. What does Jesus do? He comes and he creates rhythms from chaos. Interest of time, I just want I'll just say one point about Jesus. God says let there be light and Jesus his first sign that corresponds to let there be light is essentially let there be wine. God's creation of light establishes the possibility that we could have life together. And then Jesus shows up in a wedding that's now run out of wedding. It's run out of ability to continue to celebrate. And so the same way that God says, let there be light so that we could start living, Jesus says, let there be wine so that we could keep celebrating together. But watch this. Jesus never says, let there be wine. What does he say to do? He says, take water and fill water jars. Now, what does Jesus say later in the Bible? You can't put new wine into... So you would think, based on the cultural acumen of the day, that Jesus would have said, go get some wineskins and put water in them. Because what is he about to make? But he doesn't put the new wine into any wineskins. He puts them into Jewish purification jars. Why? Because Jesus is saying, your work of worship is directly tied to my work of miracle. So I'm going to tell you to get into a liturgy which is the purification jars. It represents liturgy. It represents worship. It represents process. It represents function. But then he's saying, but it's not going to stay that. I'm going to turn process and function and work and diligence and discipline and dieting and all the fun things that we love. I'm going to turn all of those mundane hard things, I'm going to turn it into something that creates celebration. But you do yours and I'll do mine and we'll rhythm together and all of a sudden when your worship meets my work and my work meets your worship, wine happens. Rhythm. Not system. There's nothing systematic about what Jesus did. And I love this. Jesus never heals the same way twice, ever. Heals blind eyes by touching them. Heals blind eyes by spitting in the ground. Heals a man with a withered hand just by saying, stretch your hand forth. Heals a leper not by saying, bring your body forth, but by touching it. He does all these different things all the different ways. He heals a girl who's dead by touching the coffin. He heals Lazarus by calling him out. No system, just rhythm. That's what we need in our life. The Sabbath is yelling at our systems to say, stop being systematic. Be rhythm. This is the best way to describe rhythm. Jesus saying, I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing.
So when he says rest, I don't care if it's the middle of the week. When he says work, I don't care if it's the Sabbath. Rhythm, not system. Let's stand to our feet. Heavenly Father, give us all grace to venture out into this kind of water, to have this kind of conversation. I pray that I would be able to hear and have sweet and meaningful conversation with anyone in this room who doesn't like what I just said. That we would be able to sit down at a table together and have meaningful discussion where we all are willing to hear, listen, and even potentially change. Because we only know in part. God, I pray that there would be grace on every sermon I preach because it's only in part. It has loose ends. It's not perfect. But I pray that we'll be able to work together. And in our working together, I pray that that's where perfection will come. Not in the congregational critique and not in the pastoral sermon, but when the two come together and real discussion is had. I pray that that will be the essence of what makes us church. I pray for those who heard what was said and agree without thinking. That they would live more meaningfully than that. Not driven by every new word that is said, but knowing what they believe and why they believe it and in both of those being willing to talk. I pray for those who disagree without thinking. That there would be grace to honestly receive the fact that what we think we know fully, we only know in part. I pray that there would be grace on my life and on the lives of the elders and the deacons and the decision-making body of this church that we'd be able to all talk and dialogue and there wouldn't be an authoritative structure that's controlling and manipulative, but one in which amazing things happen around a table where we talk and pray together and discuss. And I ask that everything that happens in this room agreed or disagreed would happen in a way where we would love each other with it and bring glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would pressure us and prick us and push us out of our systems and into healthy rhythm. Show us where we speak in such a way that we end the conversation and not allow it to continue. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal to us where we speak in such a way that ends a conversation and doesn't allow it to flourish and continue. I pray that we would be different in this heightening political climate, that we wouldn't be a church that hides behind political transcendence, but we wouldn't be a church that gets pulled into extremes that we would be the stabilizing center of the community that we live in. That we would reflect Jesus so a conservative like Peter and a liberal like Matthew could come here and find agreement in the person of Jesus Christ. 
I pray for us on a religious, moral, and ethical level, and doctrinal level, and theological level, that we wouldn't just defend the first thing we learned, or we wouldn't just defend what we learned and had a great experience in, but we would always be pushing the envelope, always be willing to hear more about who you are and what our doctrines should be. Father God, I pray that you give us the grace to have a stand but be willing to pull that flag up and move it when it needs to. We don't want to be the kind of church that says our stance is we have no stance. But we also don't want to be the kind of church who rallies around some old and dated view of the world. I pray that we'll begin to find this balance in your table where we come to this table, Father God, and there's both death and life, light and darkness, brokenness and healing. Your table is the preeminent example of what it means to be betrayed and redeemed at the same time, to be doubted and redeemed at the same time, to be denied and redeemed at the same time. If you can stand on a night when you were betrayed and still love and die for the betrayer, help us to be Eucharistic in our politics. Help us to be Eucharistic in our homes. Help us to be Eucharistic in our morality and in our doctrines and in our theology and our Bible reading and our understanding of the church and what she's here for. At the end of the day, I pray that we would be people who look at the world and say, this is our body broken for you. Because his body was broken for us. I can't think of a better time as a pastor to end by saying something more powerful than anything that I said or didn't say just now. That all sermon must flow into these confessions of faith and into the praying, unifying church community across the world right now. So with everything that we just heard, let's stabilize ourselves and confess the faith that saves us together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I just want to say something that really just stood out to me when we were reading that. 
The creed names two people, Mary and Pontius Pilate, rhythm and system. A woman who was willing to enter a rhythm and say, okay, I'll assume that I'm going to get pregnant from somebody who's not my husband. If she was systematic, she would say no. And then a man who couldn't break away from a system at all, who bends to truth, hears his wife say, have nothing to do with that man, and cannot break away from the system he's in, and says, I wash my hands of this, do with him as you please. Rhythm and system. May this church be more merry than Pontius Pilate. The Lord is here. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.